History Through a House. A look at British history through the doors of Longlands. Giving you the facts, not just in the history books. With your host, Isadora Martin Dye. I'm your host, Isadora Martin Dye. You're here with my husband, Ben. Hi, I'm Ben. And my cousin, Adam. Hello. All right, cool, guys. So we've had a bit of a busy week because the weather has been gorgeous and we have been trying to get on with the garden in particular. Because, like I said last episode, we seem to be full time gardeners now as opposed to house restorers. Mm-hmm. We did have one movement, which is we found someone to come in and sandblast the stone in the old house. So that's really cool. And the beams. And the beams, so that we can actually get everything back to its rawest materials and then decide where we're going to go from there. On other notes, slowly the country seems to be coming back to life. Yes. (laughs) Am I supposed to talk about golf on this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) My husband has a golf podcast called Swingdom where he talks about golf for two hours. So if you're into golf, check it out. It's much funnier than this one. But no, uh, my mom's cabinet builder can get the wood now to do his, her new doors and windows and things like that. And, Curtains are getting made, so my mom's house is coming on along at a rapid. It's all very domestic. Rapid thing. Yeah. Not so much the old house. I'm excited to get her. If we get her house done first, it means that we can then take our time in our house, which will be nice and comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And mm. uh, she's going to be living in luxury. We're going to make Adam sleep in a tent on the concrete floor. <laughs> oh, okay. There's so much yard though. Like, no, put it up. Okay. <laughs> like he doesn't get a grass floor. A concrete floor. Got it. For some reason, I feel like this is just more vindictive than anything else. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> We're a little late recording the podcast because we did, unfortunately, one of the people who keeps their horses here lost their horse this week. So we spent a few days working on that. It's an uplifting start. This yeah. isn't called the history of a horse. <laughs> well, we've done history of a horse already. Previous episode, if you haven't checked it out. All right, let's talk about what we're talking about this week. Romans. British invasion. Roman horses? Actually, I don't think I mentioned a horse once. What's the point? We might as well stop now. I know, I know, this podcast has totally lost its direction. Although we are excited to know that we've broken the podcast curse, and by doing this, we are officially over the hump of where most podcasts no longer continue. continue. The curse or the curve? I guess both. Dora, no word good. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's boding very poorly for what I'm about to tell you. So, totally transparently, I'm not a big fan of the Romans. I actually think Roman history and architecture and how they built is fascinating, but actually how they ended up here is super confusing to me and quite boring. However, I have found some stuff that I found really interesting, so I'm going to go down that route with you guys. Good. I was going to say, we could just scrap the last two episodes and just do an episode about Roman architecture instead. We'll get there. We'll get there. Roman architecture will be probably at least one or two episodes. What do you mean by Roman architecture? I don't know. Whatever they built. Oh, okay. Like the villas and stuff? Yeah. The columns, they were they really the columns, weren't they? Uh, sure. yeah. Were those the Greeks? I think it was the Greeks first, and okay. then the Romans. But yeah. I like the fact that they had underfloor heating when I think about yeah, the fact cool. that we are only just... And running water. And baths. Yep. What you said. You just said. <laughs> so they were significantly further along than we no, were like, for a long time. Like, the Romans had, like, indoor toilets where, like, the water went away. Hmm. Yeah. Didn't they? Yeah. And then, like... They left, and for 1,700 years, they're like, let's just put a hole in the side of this building, Good. and when it rains, it'll just wash all that stuff down. <laughs> and then we all got sick, and we don't know why. Yeah. Okay. Drink okay. the drain water. <laughs> so, 
what we're doing today is we're going to talk about the Romans actually starting to invade and conquer England. Last week we talked a little bit about Julius Caesar and how he, on basically a couple of PR exercises, came over to England and pretended like he was invading, but didn't get very far and didn't make much of an effort on it. Um, we are nearly a hundred years later now, and there. Are you allowed to skip that much time? England was pretty much carrying on as before. So, yeah. But what we're going to be talking about now is about a kind of not even a 20-year period. So we're talking today from 43 CE (laughs) to about 60 CE, which will take us up to when Bodicea, or Boudicca, led her rebellion. And we're going to take a whole episode next week and do Warrior Queens of England, because way more fun than... The Cavalade of Cassius's and Cassiovi and Caesar's and stuff that we're about to talk about today. Okay, so Lucius Dio, or Dio Cassius, was a Roman statesman. He was a historian of Greek and Roman origin. He published 80 volumes of history on ancient Rome and basically is the person that we are going to be pulling most of our knowledge from. How did he write 80 books about a time period that was still going on. Legit. He was like, think of them like large newspapers. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Big newspapers. He was actually... He's like the Twitter of the time. To be fair, he was writing slightly later than this period. So he was actually a historian because he was writing about the history of this period. It was not necessarily a first-hand account. Okay, so if you remember that Julius Caesar hit England in East Anglia, mm-hmm. which at that point was part of a tribe that they believed was called the Catavaliani. I'm not going to even pretend like I'm pronouncing these right, but... We never do. We nope. never do. And generally this tribe, because they were the first to be hit, were a pretty warriorish tribe. They weren't very straightforward and they weren't fans of Romans. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm okay with that. Yeah. Other than them, a lot of England was at this point trading with Rome quite happily. And fairly prepped for a Roman invasion in the sense that the they were finding a lot of the stuff that the Romans were doing, their pottery was superior to what the Brits were doing. So therefore, some of these tribes actually fairly welcomed Rome with open arms. One of these that was considered a client kingdom, which is basically someone that was paying taxes back to Rome in exchange for, well, in this case, they were actually recognized as, the leader of this tribe was recognized as the king of the entire kingdom of Rome, mm-hmm. was the Antrebates tribe, who capital... Antrebates? A-T-R-E, Atrebates, B-A-T-S, Atrebates. 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 Atrebates tribe. And they had a really good relationship with Rome. Uh, their king was recognized as a rex, so an actual king, and they did lots of trade, knew the Romans really well. However, the other tribe that the Romans were not so popular with, the Catavelli, mm-hmm. in, in East Anglia, started invading, and the Atrobates tribe. Mm-hmm. And they expelled their king. Their king actually fled to Rome Mm -hmm. and said, I need help. And as a client king, which meant he had the protection of Rome, Rome were at that point obliged to go and help him defend his kingdoms. Hmm. However, that was really just a pretext. 
Rome had had their eye on England for a while at this point. They'd actually already set up three invasions to conquer England. Two had been cancelled because of rebellions within Rome that the legions had to go back and sort out. And the other one was cancelled because at that point they thought most of England was pretty okay with with them. They wouldn't even have to conquer. They could just sign treaties with most of the tribes in England and take them that way. Um, so they'd had their eye on it for a while. And this gave them the excuse that they need. Remember we were talking about Caesar got into huge trouble for invading. There are all those rules, right? Yeah. So this gave them the excuse that they needed. And so now we're looking at a guy called Caractus. Caractus. Cool. (laughs) Ben's going to correct my pronunciation on any of these. Are you positive that's how it's pronounced? Caractus. Yeah, that sounds right. And he was basically at this point was the head of the Catavalini. I see that word. Yeah, go for it. It's top paragraph. Casavellanus. No, that's the name of the old ruler. Um, Trinaventus. Nope. North of the Thames. Thames. First paragraph. First paragraph, like three what lines down? Oh, because there's a line through it. Oh. (laughs) Catavellani. 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 Okay, we're going to go with that is how that name is pronounced. Whatever. Did you find it? Yeah, there's a line through it. Catalovani. Yeah. We'll go with Catalovani. So, he was the head of the Catalovani. And maybe this is why I don't like Rome, because I can't pronounce any of their names. And they're all, they all have the same name. And they all have a similar name. I agree. So, he actually became kind of a folk hero in all of this. So, alright. So, the Romans landed. So, Jen Stevens wrote a song about him. What, Catalovani? Really? No. But he's a folk singer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I wonder um, if he's a folk hero. Must be some folk songs about so, the only folk singer that you know. <laughs> well, there's the other one. Those are the newer ones. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> he was the only one. He was okay. the first one in the old So Catalovani <laughs> is... <James> Taylor. <laughs> um, Dio relates that when the Romans invaded, they actually brought elephants, armament, armaments, and really could have just basically could just walk through England. We kind of discussed it a little bit with Caesar. The the way the Romans fought was way too overpowering for anything that the Britons could put up in a hand-to-hand direct form of combat. And Catalovani became the head of basically this idea of guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. Um, Alright. We're going to talk a little bit... God, I'm going to have another name I can't pronounce now. Okay, upon the ascension of Claudius to emperor in 41, so they invaded in 43, so he was the emperor in time there. Vespasian? Vespasian? I'll take that. Alright, Adam's gonna have a go at this one. Vespasian. First word down, second paragraph. Vespasian. Vespasian? Vespasian? It's the first word of the second paragraph. I feel like I should start this whole thing again with correct pronunciation. Alright. We'll go with Vespasian, was appointed head of Ligio to Augusta, and it was stationed in Germany, and he was under the command of Aulius Plautus, which I do know that's how it's pronounced, because I remember hearing it once and liking that name. Um, and Aulius Plautus was head of the legions as they invaded England. Now, the reason why we're talking about Vespasian 
is because he was actually the head of the army that came towards Devon and Exeter, which is obviously what we're where we are, where we are, and what we're interested That's what we in care about. from the point of view of this house. Probably dropped a penny in the footpath. Interestingly, he was. Do you remember we talked? Do you remember last week we talked a little bit about the structures of Roman life, and there was an equestrian side of it that was a. They're nodding. Absolutely. Um, I guess. definitely remember that. He was the first, he was actually the first emperor. He went on to become the first emperor who held from an equestrian family. So oh. he was actually one of the first emperors to rise through the ranks based on his war and military efforts, not just on who is. So he's the first horse king. Basically. <laughs> oh god, I did mention horses. He was also... Yeah. Uh, involved in the Jewish rebellion of 66. You're welcome. Subjugated the Jews and killed a whole lot of them. Wait, never mind. <laughs> take it back. Take that back. Edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> say that bit Say that bit again. He was, uh, he was involved in the Jewish rebellion of 66. See, when you say wow, that... Wow, what a jerk. <laughs> he's Roman. Did you really think he was going to be on the sides of the Jewish yeah, people at this point? Jewish, well, you, you... Okay, read it again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he was a military war hero who read, read No, when you read it when you read it it sounded like you were <laughs> yeah, like he was thwarted. Like, yeah. You said he was involved in the Jewish rebellion. It wasn't like he was he thwarted the Jewish okay. rebellion. He thwarted the Jewish rebellion and, of sixty oh, six. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um yeah, and which was a little bit later. Yeah. So really he is the person who we are going to be dealing with and that anyone in this area would have thought of as head of the army or king. Okay. From what they could understand in Roman Britain. They they would have known that there was an emperor, but really on a day-to-day basis, he was going to be our person that they dealt with. Um, they eventually did Caracas. Caracas um, was pretty much a thorn in everyone's side. He led the resistance of the invaders. He eventually fled to north, but the queen there, who we'll talk a little bit more next week, was loyal to the Romans and actually handed him over in chains to the Romans. He was exhibited as a war prize when they returned as part of their triumphant parade in Rome to say that they'd conquered Britain. But he was allowed to make a speech at the Senate, and he made such an impression to the Senate that him and his family were freed and allowed to live for the rest of their lives in peace in Rome. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, he led one of the major rebellions. He was obviously a pretty inspirational leader if he could. Who would play him in a movie? Who gives the best speech? No. <laughs> like an actor. Uh, who gives good speeches? Who did the king's speech? Colin Firth. Yeah, I'll just do Colin Firth. She's him. He's old. Okay. He English. doesn't really strike me as someone that would be leading a rebellion against the I was going to say Denzel Washington. Uh, sure, that would also work. He definitely would be look like the Britons did in this time. Accurate. I will say that there were... Gerard Butler? Is he yeah. still acting? And that's because he plays every Roman, doesn't Ewan he? Ewan McGregor. Yeah. yeah, it would have to be a Brit. Well, Russell Crowe, like, does the gladiators. Hugh Laurie. Yeah. Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, probably, he probably looks the most like a Roman senator. Actually, that's Stephen probably Fry? true. Yeah. Stephen Fry probably could pull He, he always plays like the... He's that good. He's that guy. He's that dude. Anyway, moving on. Well, he okay. plays the mayor of Lake Town in The Hobbit. Oh, he does. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Those movies were awful. Okay. So, Please. finally, <laughs> finally, when it, uh, when Rome have done their thing and started conquering, and by the way, there are huge names to these battles and all that kind of stuff, but it's not my style, not my history. 
I don't really know Rome as evidenced by my pronunciation. So if anyone wants to find out more about the Roman history, again, can I recommend History of, Bro- <laughs> history of Britain podcast where they go into it in huge detail. The British History Podcast. What I'm interested in is by the time we get to a few couple of years later, it really doesn't take them very long at all. They have 11 tribes of Southeast Britain have surrendered, including the tribes down here who were the Dumanari. Duman? I remember that. Dumanarium. I wouldn't have been able to tell you what they were called, but I remember that there was a tribe. The Druids? No, the Dumani tribes. The Jum- oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. He was the legion, like I said, he was the legion commander at this point, um, Vespian was. He also went on to become Rome, Roman Empire, so he knew a whole lot about this area, which is interesting from the point of view of trade, because actually they, you would think that people wouldn't go this far west initially. It took them a very long time to go this far north. Does that make sense? But a lot of the north. south, with, in, in England from where they landed, coming down to Devon and Cornwall was about the same distance as going up to Scotland. But it took them, well, they never made it. Well, that doesn't make sense, because, like, Scotland is eight hours away from London, right? Yeah, but they didn't land in London. They probably they landed in Southampton. Like, Norwich? It, like, the bump. Where's, okay, where's, like, where's the, that's not So, you Kent. know how, you know how England, <laughs> you know how England has a triangle? No. So, Dover's in Kent, but they couldn't land at Dover the first time. They landed further north, because they had chariots on the white cliffs of Dover looking over. So, they landed further north, and were actually about... Not halfway up. Yeah, so like Ipswich, Norwich area. Is that the bump? In fact, I can tell you exactly. They established their new uh, capital at Camulonium, which I believe was... Give me a second, I'll tell you. Great Yarmouth. Which, I don't know. Anyway, okay, moving on. To Camulonium. But my point being is that if you look at it roughly, they were about the same equidistant from northern England as they are from where we are down here. But the southern tribes really very quickly gave in to the Romans, and that was because they'd had a lot more dealings with the Romans at that Mm. point. So to them, it wasn't this alien, and they could actually see some of the benefits of it. So a lot of the tribes here used the Romans for what they could bring and really didn't mind too much becoming a client kingdom. Also, if you didn't fight the Romans, you got to keep your tribe. Probably was really, wasn't really much of a, wasn't a horrible trade-off to just be like, yeah, well, <laughs> I guess if things don't really change. And we'll talk about the people next week. We're going to talk about both the queen that I told you who handed over um, Caracas, mm-hmm. Caracas, and we'll talk about Bodicea who fought the Romans. Okay. So we're going to talk about two different queens who were in that period next week. Both of whom had totally different feelings about the Roman was invasion. The, the former queen was also considered a war. Was she one of the warrior one of the warrior queens yeah. of Britain? Yeah, but different because she actually yeah she was fighting with the Romans. She was fighting with the Romans. So we're going to kind of talk about these two different women as a relation to how the whole of England mm-hmm. itself was feeling. So this week is really just an idea of to, like what were their actual movements? What were they setting up? What was their infrastructure looking like? Yeah. It's much more of a Less emotional, more practical kind of. Were there tribes all over England that were like infighting because they either were following the Romans or just like we're going to stay Britain forever? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, Absolutely, the Romans when they landed, I think they had six legions, Mm -hmm. but then I think like another twenty thousand Britons joined them to fight other Britons. 
they weren't a unified kingdom, so there was right. no sense of Britain fighting Rome. It was each individual tribe had their own okay. thing. And actually, I did decide, because I don't really have much basis for this version of history that I'm learning, and I'm learning it along with you guys, I did decide to watch the BBC America Britannia uh-huh. show, which was a dramatization. And I, it was really, really good, and I'm two or three Seven episodes one. in. But it's totally unhistorically accurate in the sense that they go very much into the idea that the druids were magical. Well, duh. They were shamans. So it goes into a they different way. They did actual way. magic? In the show, yeah. They do magic. Yeah. Uh, they send people on vision quests and stuff. And they can, yeah, they do actual magic. Reanimating stuff. It's kind of a cool show. It's yeah. kind of Game of Thronesy, but um, set in Roman Britain. Debatable. But it wasn't going to be much of a basis for. What is? It wasn't going to give. <laughs> Whether much... or not it's like Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. It wasn't going to give as much. It's of... like Game of Thrones, but only like the final season. <laughs> it wasn't going to give me much of a basis for what we're talking about today. It does sound good, though. In any historically accurate way, because I will say, if you could just get over the fact that I'm butchering all the names, the information I'm giving you is sound. Is sound information? Okay, let's talk about Exeter. Yeah. So the city, yeah, the city, um, otherwise known as Isaac, Isaac, or yeah, I'm gonna call it that Ix- now. Iska, okay, I S C A. They don't know how they pronounced it. I like to think that it was Iska because that makes more sense as to how it became Exeter. Okay, we'll take that. Um, and it was a town in the Roman province of Britannia at the site of present-day Exeter. Mm-hmm. It served as the tribal capital of the Dumanian. The tribe. Dumani? In this it says Dumani Am. Oh, okay. Is that plural? I maybe. Every time you say it, you say it differently. It's just <laughs> Look, everywhere I read it it's written differently, okay. so that's one of the reasons why this pronunciation is all right. Just mostly jealous because I don't know how to read it. <laughs> it's fine. You'll get there someday. How do you do your own podcast? I can listen. The Swingdom <laughs> on iTunes and Spotify. The Okay, so basically Exeter was set up as a Roman fort. As far as we know, there were only about seven or eight Roman cities established in the early invasion, so Exeter was one of the very first. I keep thinking we took you to Exeter, but we didn't. What do you mean? Yes, you did? You did? Yeah, well, he's been around Another Exeter. two or three times. Before lockdown. Yeah. Oh. But did we show you the Roman walls? Yeah. Oh. So... There are still Roman walls standing there of the original Roman site. I'm going to give you a little bit of information about what Exeter would have looked like. Buildings within the fortress, such as barracks, granaries, and a workshop, were timber structures. The post trenches were excavated in 1970 in advance of the Guildhall Shopping Centre development. The only known building in the fortress not of timber was a stone-built military bathhouse. The bathhouse was supplied by a natural spring via an aqueduct which entered the fortress through the rear gate. The excavations revealed the hot room and part of the warm room. The bathhouse was also supplied with an external exercise yard, one corner which was a cockfighting pit. So, for those that don't know, Guildhall really is in the centre now of what is current Exeter. And it was a huge fortress for a long time. It seems to have been established in. 55 CE, and it, as a fortress, mm-hmm. not as a city, went into decline in, they think, about 410 CE. So it was around for nearly 400 years. Was it similar in size to the, the modern-day city? 
it was forty about forty two acres. So no. No. Um, and it was the base of a five thousand strong Second Augustan Legion, and they also built up unlike unlike many of the other unlike many of the other cities or fortresses, the city and settlement that was built up around it survived pretty much unscathed mm-hmm. throughout the next half many years. The dolphin antifix from that was found in the military bathhouse. Dolphin antifix. Dolphin antifix. Dolphin. Dolphin. Antifix. Uh, it st- sticks to the ceiling. Gotcha. Okay. Sticks to the ceiling. It was found at about sixty A.D. Well, these are all the bathhouses. No, it gave them an idea as to which military. So there's no actual record of which military was garrisoned there. Okay. But that was one of the things that gave them an indication. Also, their emblem. Emblems were Capricornus, Pegasus, and Mars. Little tie into another podcast <laughs> called Legendary, All which I just plugs. did, um, where we talk very much about Pegasus. <laughs> I never take the plugs out. I would. I just put white noise in there. Okay. <laughs> Whale noises. <laughs> they also established Topsham at this point, which is a little town just outside of Exeter and on the coast. Is that where the fish and chips places? It's where there's ten pubs that we used to drink in as a rule on extra, so you'd go out from the university and try and drink top Japan and get home safely. Super dangerous as an adult thinking about it. Um a supply depot along the lines between the extra fortress and Topsham was excavated in two thousand and ten. Cool. So initial evidence suggests it was actually occupied as soon as England uh, as soon as Romans occupied England. Okay. And they are still discovering stuff. Right now they're building, they're doing some new work on putting in a new big bus depot in Exeter. Mm -hmm. And they're still finding tons of Roman stuff all the time. Exeter's Roman history is still... Official finding in Hand of the Fist just constantly? Yeah. Which doesn't really tell us what it would have looked like in Hannock. Because this was Exeter and Hannock is obviously very different. However... Is it eight miles from Exeter? Yeah, which obviously, oh, I think it's a little further than that. Eight miles? Maybe 11? I think 11. Here to Exeter? Yeah. It takes half an hour to get there. Yeah, but it takes you 10 minutes to get out of Teen Valley. True. But they did recently do some excavation in Ippelpen Village in 2012, which is in the Teen Village and Teen Valley in only about 5 or 10 minutes from Mm -hmm. here. And they recently did, 2012, they did this excavation from it. I'm going to read you from Daniel Wooten from Exeter University. What they found there, because obviously it gives you a pretty good idea if they're finding that there, what they might have found just a few miles further up the road. Previously, there was very little evidence of any Roman influence beyond the Roman city of Exeter. We are starting to see more evidence of Roman influence further into Devon and Cornwall through new discoveries such as Calstock and now this large Romanian British settlement. What is interesting on this site is that Despite the presence of Roman pottery and coins, the inhabitants are still living in native roundhouses, as Britain had done for centuries before. So they are maintaining some traditional ways while adapting to the influence of the Roman Empire. Okay, so 16 miles. Okay. Sorry. We hope to continue with future research on the area to uncover more research and information and piece together the jigsaw of the extent of Roman influence in the country. The project is providing the wider community and the University of Exeter students with an exciting opportunity for field work, experience, and training. So they really didn't think that they thought everyone just flocked to the cities and anyone who wasn't in the city 
had almost no contact with one. Mm-hmm. And this excavation. Well, that's strange, because, like, so we live just off the A38. Yeah. So if I'm thinking, like, if I'm thinking, like, a geographical archaeologist, that's where we're Well, like, Bovey Tracy is obviously, like, six, between 16 and 20 miles away from Exeter Castle. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, a, that, is that, like, a day's ride? A half day's ride? It's a day's walk. Yeah. So, like, if you were headed down to Plymouth, mm-hmm. which is another big port city, you'd stop. I think you'd, you'd end up stopping probably, it'd probably take you two nights to get there. Three, two, two and a bit days, okay. three days to get there. Mm-hmm. So I imagine Bubby or Newton Abbott would be your first stop. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one between here and Plymouth. And so if Hennick was here, and that was an overnight stop. It makes sense that this would be a little village yeah. near enough to a Roman outpost. And certainly from the perspective of location, I I mean, it's almost indisputable that Hennock has been a settlement for yeah. Yeah. thousands of years before this. Mm-hmm. However, you got to remember, people weren't really traveling. If you lived on a farm and you had your little farm, the amount of trade that you would do outside your teeny village would have been very, very small. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is like, it goes from it goes from cities to towns yeah. to villages. So like places like Bovey and Newton Abbott get their support from travelers coming out of Exeter, mm-hmm. and then places like Hennick and Teen Village and well, Teen Village wasn't there. Yeah, but um, like Chudley Knighton and Chudley would have would have been like little satellite and been supported by their slightly larger village, like slightly larger towns. Mm. I mean, absolutely. I it I I totally agree with you to see to say that. How long did it take you to walk to Buffy? Uh, from here? Yeah. An hour and a half or two? Not long. Yeah, so you can walk to Bubby and back to trade your goods for a day. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think Bubby's been a market town for yeah. ever. But I, I, it's, I think the wording of it is there was previously little evidence of Roman influence beyond the Roman city. So people outside of the walls of the city were just carrying on being British. Okay. Being British. Yeah. Um, like the Romans didn't have any interest in. Or they just weren't interacting in that way. Yeah. yeah. They, like I said, it, uh, generally they just walked through the South. Well, no, because, like, the Germans had a very, they were, they were very interested in turning, turning Jersey and Guernsey into propaganda, like, look at how yeah. great the Germans are. And I know Rome did that in certain parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. In the cities. They yeah. wanted people to move to cities. And, and take up sort of a Roman lifestyle. Yeah. But I think it's strange that they wouldn't necessarily go out of their way to... Try and Romanize. But this is what they're saying, is that actually they they did try and go out their way. Mm. They thought they hadn't, but they did try and go out their way to Romanize. Seemed like... I guess it wouldn't... Maybe it didn't seem worth it if the villages did exist and they were so small that what difference did it make anyway? Yeah. And there was definitely this idea that people were encouraged to move to cities. Mm -hmm. So... Why wouldn't you? Really? I read one article that we may come back to at some point talking about the extreme levels of unemployment and poverty in Roman cities because people were encouraged to move there very quickly and they wanted to move there to be close to the Roman mm. economic center, but actually there wasn't the. Thank God, was there a bubble? Yeah. <laughs> Not the first, remember? Yeah, no. All right. So this is where we are in about 19. Uh, about 1960. In about 60 CE. Exeter's pretty much an established fortress at this point. Most of the south of England has at least bent the knee in 
name only to Rome. And they return back conquering heroes with all these tales about how easily they conquered Britain. What we're going to talk about next week is how mostly that was propaganda and actually the problem with Dio's version of a lot of these things is that they don't really address how much rebellion there was within it. Mm. Um, but there are other authors and writers who do. And most of the emperors and the people brought into England as uh, to run it were openly pissed at the Brits and how they would not just give up. Uh-huh. Okay, what we're going to talk about, as I kind of said last week, was that all this stuff is not that interesting. Well, it's super interesting. The social aspect of it. So each week I want to talk a little bit about something social that came up throughout the Roman period. And last week I said we were going to talk about marriage and sex, and this is where we are. Ooh. Yay! Sultry. So we're going to talk about Julius Caesar. Again? Yeah, just briefly. He's a corpse on the ground at this point. He is, but he also explained how he saw people living in England. Groups of 10 or 12 men have wives together in common, and particularly brothers along with brothers and fathers with sons. But the child born of the unions, men's space, are reckoned to belong to the particular house to which the maiden was first conducted. So Julius Caesar's idea was basically women, whoever deflowered a woman, was basically the person who took responsibility for any of the offspring. Mm. Other than that, there was not an idea of marriage necessarily or the idea of being coupled up. Coupled up. So I'm going to kind of tell you how the Celts were doing it in England and then tell you how the Romans were doing and the obvious difference between the two is huge. Mm-hmm. So ancient Celtic women served as both warriors and wars. Women were trained to fight. They learned how to use swords. They used to use weapons such as bows. They would ride, stride. They basically were brought up exactly the same. A girl would have been brought up almost in exactly the same way as her male counterpart. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you were a member of the elite. So very differently as how you would think of English elite women much later where right. the women were taught genteel arts and men were taught war. At that point, it was basically seen that if you were on the ground, you couldn't fight. Okay. Hence the rise of the warrior queens. One of the most prominent training schools in Gaelic mythology was run by, and you know what's great, they have actually put pronunciation in here, Skaha or Skaya. Okay. A woman warrior in what is now Scotland, she trained the greatest hero of Irish legend, Cúhollin, with the KH in Scottish block. Oh, so Cúh. Cúh. So pronounce it again with a Cúh. Cúhollin. Okay. This, oh, well, it sounds like this most famous of her pupils went on to fight the entire armies alone and perform other great deeds. Skaha's female rival, Alfie, was considered to be one of the fiercest warriors alive. Both of these women led armies. The practice of bearing arms was relatively common amongst women. And here's one of the things that I think is really cool. Dowries systems totally were So... If I asked you guys what a dowry is, what would you tell me? It's like how many goats you give the father of your new wife. Yeah, that. It's <laughs> slightly different. It would actually be how many goats the father of your new wife gives you. Oh. So it's, what is he... It's like a living will? Yeah, what is he selling mm. 
you for, how much you were. So, for instance, if you were... How much, a, how much the husband is worth? Or how much the girl is worth. The girl, the... the the husband, the father of the girl, yes, would pay the husband, the husband to, to marry take her. his wife or to take his daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was her dowry. Gotcha. It was set up basically so that the woman wasn't coming into the marriage without some money and could look after herself. Mm-hmm. Ideally, mm-hmm. the dowry system in England was very different, um, and obviously, guys, this is. There is no way to know how accurate this is under any tribe. Like, every tribe would have had its own system. But certainly, it was customary for each party to bring in an equal sum to the marriage. And then the amount would be left to accrue profit. Upon the death of the partner, the surviving partner would receive his or her original share of the dowry and the profits it had made. And if a couple divorced, each partner got his or her original contributions and its profits. So it was more like a savings account where each, the husband and wife, both had to put in money before they got married. It's basically a savings account. Um, it's a nuptial agreement. Yeah. It's a prenup. But it was a prenup that involved both parties coming in basically on equal footing. Yeah. And with the idea that the dowry wasn't about buying or selling, but about being able to earn. So very different idea. There was one person called Mitnick who recently did a study looking at a small tribe in England and looked at their, and it's a little earlier than this, we're talking pre-Celtic, like Bronze Age, mm. um, Iron, like pre-Bronze Age, pre-Iron Age, and they did a genealogical study of these tribes, and they found that the family trees only contained daughters when they were under the age of 15 to 17. So, by the time, it means the marrying age was around 15 to 17. Mm-hmm. And the daughters would then have set off with their family. They would have left their tribe that they were with and gone to their new tribe that they'd married into, their new family that they married into. It was quite clear cut, is what they found. Um, and honestly, for this time, 17, that's kind of old mm. to be marrying people off. There wasn't this idea of really young marriages in England. Mm. So the way the Celts were living was definitely a freer sexual lifestyle. There are quotes from women to various Roman emperors saying, you know, you guys are idiots because you keep your affairs under the table, whereas we women get to pick the most powerful men that we want to sleep with, and we make it very obvious. Mm. Um, And a few other different bits of pieces where the British women were actually very proud of the fact that they were sexually liberated and stood as equals alongside their men. Mm. Now let's talk about the Romans, where it was legitimately the exact According to Roman According to Roman history historian Livy, in mid eighth century BCE, so now we're going back in time, mm-hmm. there was a famous instance where the Romulus, founder of Rome. Venus Romulus. Yeah, but Romulus was a little worried about the fact that Rome was growing very quickly and mostly with men. So he ran off to Sabine with some of his guys and basically kidnapped all the virgins of the village. Yes. Once he had kidnapped them, they then set out to basically persuade those women to marry them with the idea that they would become Roman citizens and give them security and things like that. And Romulus actually married the only one who wasn't a virgin, weirdly. He married the one that was already married. 
um, Hercula, and she would actually go on to be the person that stopped the war between the Romans and the Spartans. Mm-hmm. But from the very earliest idea, there was this thing that Romans literally would just go take the women that they wanted mm-hmm. and force them into doing exactly what they wanted. Under Roman law, we talked about this a little last week. The oldest living male was absolute head of the family. Yes. They had absolute authority, life and death, over his children and his wife. He had the right to seek matches for his children, arrange a child's betrothal long before they became of age. So basically, infants were betrothed to each other. And daughters should only marry into other respectable families. But, interestingly, if a daughter could prove that the proposed husband was a bad character, she could legitimately refuse him. So, I mean, that's good. They were <laughs> married off at 12. Yay, 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 yay. So, compared to the Brits, <clears throat> you can imagine, you, you can begin to imagine what it would have looked like to the British when these Roman men came over with their wives and Groups. tried to settle. And actually, a lot of it took a long time. It was by the time they come over to England, I have to say the Roman women were allowed to leave the house and go to That's events nice. and things. But earlier in Roman history, they were not. They were not allowed to do anything with outside the home. Um, most Roman women seem to have married a little later than the age of consent, but noble women obviously would marry as soon as as soon as they came of age because of political ideas. Divorce was very different in England as well, but surprisingly not so different. It was probably one of the traditions that was least contrasting in both ways. In England, you could literally just say, I don't want to be with you anymore, Mm -hmm. and that was enough. But there wasn't an idea of marriage generally, so it was more just like a breakup. Because if you don't really marry, then you You can't really get get divorced. Um, In Rome... You just didn't have to go home for three days, and that was basically counted as a divorce. Huh. Um, and depending on how badly behaved your husband was, you could also take some of your dowry back. In Rome. Mm-hmm. So, not super backward, I guess. Um, Alright. Early Roman law recognized three types of marriage, symbolizing the sharing of bread was one. So breaking bread together mm-hmm. by purchase and by habitual cohabitation. Common law marriage. Yeah. Uh, pretty much all of those in the upper classes that we were talking about last week would be married by breaking bread or by purchase, whereas the plebs would basically marry by moving it together. together. A woman could avoid her husband's legal control simply by being absent from their shared home for three consecutive nights once a day. So even if they went home to their father for three nights a year, mm-hmm. they still technically were their father's responsibility versus their husband's responsibility, meaning that their father had control over their purchases, their life and death, and then what they did with their life, not their husband. <clears throat> that sounds changed. very similar to like Middle Eastern countries. Uh, honestly, I was thinking that having spent some time in Egypt where you barely see a woman on the street, mm. it really had that feeling. And... I will say the biggest difference compared to almost everywhere else between Rome and Greek and everywhere else at this point, they did believe in single matrimonial relationships. Ah. 
there was a husband and wife. There was not multiple partners. Yeah. There was no sense of polygamy. Monogamy, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, although monogamy to me means something different than what it yeah. meant to them. Yes, yeah, Because you sure. could, in fact, sleep with prostitutes and other stuff as yeah. a husband without it being considered cheating. Got it. There were a few people. Very cool, Rome. Yeah. <laughs> there was like a there was like a list of people that were like, if you sleep with them, it doesn't, it ca- doesn't it, count. It doesn't count. Alright. As Rome got kind of further through, it was becoming much more what we would see as marriage. But that also becomes in line with as Christianity was building. Mm-hmm. So as Christianity grew, the idea of what marriage was grew. The idea of what was acceptable behavior grew, and the idea of woman's role grew. Also, from a very realistic point of view, as people started conquering, as Rome started moving and conquering more places, they needed to take the women with them. Mm-hmm. So they were bringing, they weren't living in a city. I just think that if you're taking a wife with you to another country in another city, You've not got thousands of men in this country that can run it. The women have to step up a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine that seeing all the British tribes being run by women didn't help Roman women feel a little bit more empowered. Yeah. Definitely. When you've got when you've got British women coming to the table and negotiating with Roman men, uh-huh. it does prove that there's not only one way to do this. Little pale. According to the historian Valerius Maximus, divorces were taking place by six oh four. BCE or earlier, so way earlier. And the Republican Law Code of the Twelve Tables provided for it. Divorce was socially acceptable if carried out within social norms. By the time Julius Caesar was around, divorce was relatively common and shame free, the subject of gossip rather than social disgrace. However, Valerius says that Lucian Annius was, was disapproved of because he divorced his wife without consulting his friends first. <laughs> The least important, well, not the least important. Uh, but... Well, it un- he undertook the action for his own purposes without considering its effects on his social network. So, therefore, in 307 BCE, they expelled him for the Senate for moral turpitude. If I ever get married and I get a divorce without contacting my Facebook friends, I'm not, not expecting that kind of backlash. I just think it's hilarious because that's basically what they're talking about. Yeah. It was awkward for the rest of them because... <laughs> you didn't consider their feelings. They didn't know which side to pick. <laughs> so he got kicked out. That's fine, that's fine, I There's guess. There's nothing about who he was married to, but I imagine she was probably quite a powerful woman. She must have been. So, that's kind of my dry tribe of marriage and the differences between the two sides. Marriage. 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 what brings us to that Next week, we are going to talk about the Warrior Queens, and that should be really good fun. And I hope that I taught you guys anything this week, because I feel that it was really hard for me to learn, which sounds awful, but the the stuff where we're talking about different people... I love social history. I love learning about marriage and how people were interacting and how diaries were handed over. But really, the idea of who was marching on who and where the battles took place is not my thing. So next week we are going to talk about Warrior Queens and the social history of that and some of the battles that took yeah, place. Yeah, that sounds really fun. I um, think it'll be, it'll be good. Cool. Guys, listening in, you might find something a little bit different because also dropping into your feed as soon as you finish listening to this is the new podcast that Adam and I are doing, which is where we look at some legendary stories or people and uncover the truth and history behind them. The first ones we start out with are 
the Silent Pool and the Melon Heads, which is a very local history to both of us. Mm-hmm. And the one after that, we go into a little bit broader uh, modern history. Internet more. stuff. It's yeah. cool and fun. Go listen to it. Well, you've got no. Well, you have got a choice. I guess it's going to. You have no next. choice. You have no choice. We're it's holding your families hostage. But if you enjoy it, and please go and subscribe to it, and learn a little bit more about some of the legends of the world, it goes into some of the stuff we really enjoy. Yeah. And Pegasus. Oh, yes, things you enjoy, which are horses, and that's it. <laughs> it's just the history of famous horses. All right, bye, guys. Bye, Thank bye, you. Bye. 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 Hi, thank you so much for listening to History Through a House. If you've enjoyed what you have to hear, please go onto iTunes and rate and review us. Also, we love to hear feedback, things that we may have done wrong, stories that you know that are interesting that we should cover, or houses that you know that you think we should cover. You can find us on Instagram at History Through a House Podcast or on Facebook at History Through a House. You can also email us at historythroughahouse at gmail.com. We really want to hear your feedback and we're really excited to get to know you. Thank you. Bye.